Good morning. Good morning. So, the only problem that I see about this, this whole deal is that uh, I speak to a lot of medical students and, and residents across the country, but I don't think I've ever spoken in, in less than an hour or two. And Corey says I got about a half an hour, so I need you guys to give me the 10-minute the warning because uh, going over will be a, a real challenge today. It, it's been over 20 years since I've been to Boston. Uh, I brought my son with me. He just turned 13, and this was an opportunity for us to get away for the first time together. He's, can you stand up, Samuel? Samuel's coming today. Hey, Samuel. Samuel said he wants to go to a science class today, so you may see him sitting next to you. He's a good-looking kid, didn't he? Well, <laughs> a lot of people say he gets his looks from me because his mama still has hers. That's a joke. All right, so... Uh, what, what time is it? How much time do I actually have? 30 minutes. Okay. All right. Well, it's always good to begin a chapel service with prayer. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the privilege of coming here today. It really is an honor. And, and we, we come here, Lord, as broken people in need of your grace. We confess our sins, Lord, and ask you to cleanse our hearts. Lord, help me to say whatever you'd have me to say. And whatever words I speak that are not your words, Lord, may they be swiftly forgotten. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So the, the verses for today's chapel service are ones that many of you will be familiar with. They're from Ephesians chapter 2. I'll just read them from the New International Version, verses 8 through 10. It says this, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no, one, no man can boast. Okay, so that's the one that most of us are familiar with, and we often forget verse 10, which says this, and it's what we want to focus on today. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let me read the same passage to you from this Message Bible. Some of you may be familiar with Eugene Peterson's translation. Let me read it from his version. It says this, It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play a major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join Him in the work He does, the good work He has gotten ready for us to do, work we had better be doing. Let me read that part again. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join Him in the work He does. The good work He has gotten ready for us to do, the work we had better be doing. Pascal, some of you know who Pascal is, the, the great philosopher, said this. He said, the reason, have you ever wondered, why do we have to pray? In the Bible it even says, God knows what we need before we ask Him. Has that ever, ever caused you to wonder, why, then why do we pray if God is om, omnipotent, all-knowing, and He's also omniscient, all-powerful? All powerful, no, omnipotent, all powerful, omniscient, all knowing, then why do we even pray? You know what Pascal said? He said, Because God wants to give us the dignity of causality. You get that? He wants to, God, He doesn't need us for anything. He doesn't need us for anything. Okay? In the Bible, somewhere it says that if, if we don't do it, He'll raise the rocks up to cry out. He doesn't need us for anything. But because He's a good God, and a loving God, He's created good works for us to do. 
And the jo- our task is to decide whether we're going to do them or not. I went to the basketball game last night, so we use a little analogy, right? So God's the coach. He's got the game going. We actually know who's going to win the game. We already know. But you're sitting on the bench. He's got a place for you on the team. He's got a place for you on the team, and he's saying, he's saying, hey, Sally, Susie, Moesha, I don't know what your name is, but come on in. Come on in. It's your turn to play. And, and the question that I pose to you today is, are you going to sit on the bench and look at him and do your iPhone thing or whatever and fool around on the bench? Or are you going to get up and take your position on the team because he wants to allow you to make a shot? He's got some plays for you to play. He wants to give you the dignity of causality. He wants to let you participate in his good work. And that's what it says. That's why I like Peterson's translation. He says he creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join in the work he's doing. He doesn't need us, but he's created, he's created you for a purpose. I know that you have a famous uh, professor, Dr. Is it Guyberson, over here. And, and I know he, he, and I think even he would agree. We can ask him later. I hope to get to meet him. But even if you, if, even if you can't accept theistic evolution, maybe you're a six-day young earth creationist, but we all agree about one thing, and that is that God created us for a purpose. He created us, right? We are not the product of time and chance. So all of you have a purpose. And the question, as you sit there and figure, try and think about what are you going to do after you finish ENC, you're going to have to, you have some choices to make. You can decide whether or not to get in the game or whether or not to spend your whole life fooling around on the bench. I don't say that as one who comes in judgment because I can remember, it doesn't seem like very long ago when I was sitting in your place and I had no idea what I was going to do. When you go to Yale, you know, you, 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 they, they make you feel like that you can do anything, right? You go to Wall Street and make a bunch of money. You can be a lawyer. You can, be a prof- you can do whatever you want to do. And I remember sitting there. You know what? I remember when I got out of Yale, I was so confused, I called up the Children's Television Network because I decided I wanted to work for Sesame Street. Now, I had no, no reason for that, but I was absolutely confused. I went to the naval recruiter after I got out of there because I thought, maybe I'll train dolphins in San Diego. Like, I had no idea what I was going to do. Right? Let me tell you a little bit of my story. Maybe that will help, help you relate. So, but I wanted to say that I don't speak to you from, from, a, from a prophetic judgment standpoint. Right? Just like the woman caught, when the woman was caught in adultery and she was brought before Jesus and he said, whoever's without sin, you can cast the first stone. Well, I'm like those guys. I can't cast any stones at you. The main message today is it's all grace. It's all grace. Everything that we have is grace. Grace means that we get what we didn't deserve. We get something that we didn't earn. God just gives it to you. Okay? And that's me. Let me tell you my story. I grew up in southern Indiana. Right? I learned how to, I, was, I spent my summers milking cows and cutting tobacco. And my plan in life as a junior in, in college was to go to a school where I would get the best, the best school that I could go to to play basketball on a full ride because my family didn't have any money for school. I was a decent student and I was a decent athlete. And so that was my sophisticated plan for which college I would choose. I went to the state championship in, uh, in track and field my junior year, and so my senior, so my plan was basketball, but my, junior, my senior year, because of the track thing, I started getting letters from schools saying, hey, would you come and run track for us? And some of the schools that started sending letters were from out east, and I'm from the Midwest. I had no idea where Yale was, but I, got, I started getting some of these letters, and I remember opening one of these letters and thinking, wow, what a concept, athletics and an education. 
And, and that was, that was kind of something that was new to me. And so I went ahead and I applied. And lo and behold, I got in. Now, it was later, after I got there, they told me how I actually got in. They said, look, man. They said, first of all, we needed a hurdler and a long jumper. They said, second of all, don't you know that they have a quota system here? And this is actually true. The Ivy League, I don't know if all of them, but the big old ones have a quota system. They may have racial quota systems, I don't know, but they also have geographic systems, uh, geographic uh, uh, desires to, to bring in people from all over the country. So they try and get people from every state in the union. They also try and get people from different parts of the state. So if you're from Boston or Chicago or New York or Los Angeles, forget it. You need to be Albert Einstein or Mozart or something to get in there. But if you're from southern Indiana and can just put your name on the right line, you're in. Right? You're in. So, so I'm at Yale. I'm at Yale. And I, and I get there and I meet, I meet all, the, all the people that got above 99th percentile on the Iowa Basic Skills Test. And a lot of those people there... Uh, I, don't, I can say that I don't think in my small town I'd ever met a, an atheist. And I get to Yale, and not only do I meet atheists, but I meet smart atheists. Atheists who have thought more about why, they ha why it's rational not to believe than I had thought about why it's rational to believe. And I had a bit of a faith crisis, and there was a guy on the football team that handed me a book by somebody I'd never heard of. It was called The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. I'd never heard of the man before. And I read that book, and, that, and Lewis helped me to get through there because he was able to articulate things that I believed in ways that made sense, and I was able then to, to, to have a sense of, of um, uh, security about my faith. But I didn't do it all right. I was a Christian when I went there, but I made lots of mistakes. Okay? I hurt some people. I came real close to making some really stupid, stupid mistakes. That speaks to the grace of God. And after I graduated... From college, I stayed on and worked in a lab in the medical school for two years because I wasn't sure what I was going to do. This was my Sesame Street period. And, and by the grace of God, I continued in a Bible study there. And, and all of a sudden, after I had graduated, this beautiful uh, woman shows up who, uh, she was pretty on the outside too. You know what I mean? But she, she showed up. And, uh, and I, I knew... I knew this was the one. And so, and then she went off. She graduated. She was a year behind me. So she graduated and she went off to Wheaton College to study Bible for a year. And then, and I was talking to her about things. And I said, hey, what are you doing? And she said, well, I'm taking the MCAT. I'm going to get ready to go to medical school. Now, that's something, that was one of the things on my list. And I'm, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I'm thinking, she's taking the MCAT. She's in Chicago. I'm in Connecticut. So guess what I did? I took the MCAT. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then... And this is, this is true. I'm glad she's not here. <laughs> so we, we applied to mostly the same places. Not, every, not exactly, but most of the same places. And, and at some point in, in, her, in the process, when she was interviewing with people, they would say to her something like this, Gina, what can we do to get you to come to our medical school? She was a really, really good student. They never asked me that. <laughs> she said, what can we do to get you to come to our medical school? And some, at some point in the process... She said, you know, the guy that I'm planning on marrying wants to, is applying to this school. So now you know how I got into the University of Chicago. <laughs> when, when my wife was at the University of Chicago interviewing, the last, she hated it. I had already gone there and interviewed. I liked it. She hated it. She thought about leaving. She hated it so much. But she said, 
But all over her essay, it said that she was a Christian and she was there to serve Christ. So she felt like it wouldn't be a good witness to leave. So she stayed. And the last interview was an African-American nuclear cardiologist at the University of Chicago. And he said, I've been waiting weeks to interview you. He said, I've been waiting weeks to interview you. He said, I think God has me on the admissions committee to help Christians come to this school. He said, you can be a committed atheist, committed committed Buddhist, a committed Muslim, a committed anything else, no problem. But if you're a committed Christian and they sense that on the admissions committee, you're not getting in. He said, I think God has got me on the admissions committee to help people like you come here. And he said, oh, by the way, I see that you want to serve the poor. Have you ever heard of Lawndale Christian Health Center here in Chicago? She said, no. She told me about it. And before we got married, we got married a month before we started medical school. So this was like January. I came out to visit. We drove to Lawndale just to see what this place is. And I can tell you, we, we had never seen anything like it in our lives. We were blown away. The first thing to, to tell you about it is that it was the, in the ugliest neighborhood I've ever seen. There's no trees. There's no nothing. It's just ugly. And we go there, and, we, and it's, they got this old, dilapidated car dealership. Apparently, it's where Al Capone used to buy his cars from. But by this time, it's, it's a nasty-looking thing, and they've stuccoed it, and it's like painted this nasty blue. But we go in there, and they got this. They got, the first thing you notice when you walk in there is a basketball court in this big old building, a basketball court. And there's a banner up there that says, The Lawndale Miracle. And then you went over to the side, and you saw the, the little health center. At that time, it was about um, 10 exam rooms. It was pretty small. But, I, but when I started to talk to some of the people at the front desk, and I started to talk to some of the doctors, I realized that I'd never seen anything like this before. One of the doctors was Dr. Pam Smith. She grew up in Lawndale. Lawndale's one of the poorest neighborhoods in this country. Pam Smith was her family's ticket out of poverty. As she tells the story, her mom scrubbed floors to help her to go to college. She got accepted, actually, to Yale Medical School and went to, to, to Yale Medical School. And, as, and so she was, the, and the whole plan was for her to help raise her mama and her grandma up out of poverty. Instead of taking a high-paying job, Pam Smith came back to Lawndale to make $40,000 a year to work there and serve the people, serve her, her neighbors. And so I, and, and a lot of these folks lived in the neighborhood, and I, I just I could not believe it. So we stayed in touch over the years. We went off to residency, and, we, and then we, we started talking again, and they said, would you like to come and work for us? And for us, it was, it was pure privilege. It's all grace, Right? And so I've been there for 12 years now. I've been working as a medical director for uh, 11 years. I'm a family doc, but most of my time actually is spent doing administrative work. And the bulk of my clinical time is spent doing obstetrics. We deliver lots of babies, okay? We deliver about 1,000 babies a year. Um, and it's all grace. So that's, that's the story of how, I, how we ended up. And we, and we live there in the neighborhood. And, and we can talk about the whole relocation thing because I'm not in love with it. You know, it's hard. The work is hard, but it's good work. Let me tell you a little bit about the history of the health center very briefly. Okay, This dude is at Wheaton College. He, he decides that God's calling him to work in, in, a, in Lawndale. He moves into Lawndale. He gets a job coaching at Farragut High School. Farragut's the place where uh, Kevin Garnett finished his senior year in high school to, to make it kind of practical for you. So coach is coaching at Farragut. We call him coach. He's coaching at Farragut High School, and they don't even have... Uh, uh, any weights for the football team to lift. So somebody donates a universal weight set. Coach puts it in, in his apartment. He was robbed ten times in the first two years that he lived there, by the way. Interestingly, the guy that used to rob him is now a, an elder in our church. So Coach gets a universal weight set and he starts a fellowship of Christian athletes group with the students. So you got these kids coming. 
Fellowship Christian Athletes group, single kids, and they start talking about, and they're all unchurched, and he starts talking about the nature of, of church, and they say, Coach, you know, isn't this something like what we're doing? Isn't this church? That was not on his radar screen, but to make a long story short, in 1978, they started the Lawndale Community Church with about uh, 15 kids from the neighborhood, a couple of moms, and this guy, Coach. And, and as they were studying the scriptures, the story goes that they were looking at the greatest commandment. Remember what it is? Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. He says, all the law and the prophets hang in these two verses. So this, as the story goes, one of those kids in that early church said, Coach, if we're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves, shouldn't a church love its neighborhood? Shouldn't a church love its neighborhood? And he said, that makes sense to me. So they got a chalkboard out and they wrote down what the needs of the neighborhood were. The first need that they wrote down was a safe place for us to do laundry because at the time the laundry mats were all controlled by the gangs. The second thing they wrote on the board was health care because at that time the, the infant mortality rate in North Lawndale was as high as it is in many third world countries and people couldn't get to the doctor. And they had a whole bunch of other things they put on there. Oh, a safe place for kids to play. So the first thing they did actually was they had this, they had acquired this building, this, this old car dealership, and they looked at it and they said, we, we'd like to put a basketball court in here. And they got an estimate for the roof, it was too much. So they said, well, we can't raise the roof, but we can start digging. So the kids in the community spent the entire summer digging the floor out from underneath the uh, inside of this car dealership, okay? And when they got down low enough, then this was in 1986 when the Chicago Bears won the Super Bowl. Somebody on the Bears heard about this work that these kids were doing in Lawndale, and the Chicago Bears paid for the wood back with the wood floors and the backboards at the Lawndale Community Gym, right? And so every year since then, we've played the Chicago Bears just for fun. In May, they come over and we play them in volleyball on that basketball court. It's still painted in Bears colors. That's the epicenter. We've got four clinical sites right now. Three of them have basketball courts in them. Three of our clinics have basketball courts. So here's what it's like to walk in our clinic. It's, a, it's, a, it's an old car dealership. You walk in and you'll see Cynthia, our greeter. And right behind Cynthia on the wall are those words, that the, which is the rallying cry of Lawndale, loving God and loving people. Right? That's what we're trying to do. And then right to the right of Cynthia, you'll see the basketball court. And you might see kids from the neighborhood playing today. You might see, you might see our senior services group. On every Monday morning, we have 120 seniors come out there and do these little, like, low-impact aerobic things like that. <laughs> it's a cool place. Uh, so in 1984, they were thinking about this healthcare thing. And in 1984, two doctors moved into the neighborhood and they started seeing patients. Okay, let me fast forward 20-something years, 26, 7 years. Today we've got four sites. Okay, we're, some people would say we're the largest evangelical health center caring for the poor in the country. Okay, we're going to see 140,000 medical visits. If you count the nurse and the dental and the eye visits, we'll see over a quarter of a million patient visits this year alone. We put a fitness center in a few years ago because we said, you know, it's one thing to tell a patient you need to exercise. It's another thing to give them a place to do it. Almost all of our folks have been held up at gunpoint. My, my best buddy last year was held up at gunpoint at noon in the middle of the day. It's, it's not a safe neighborhood, right? The gangs call the place where our, our health center is the Holy City because it's the area where four of the major Chicago gangs have their borders come together, right? So, it's not, so we said, you know, it's one thing to say you should exercise. It's another thing to provide 
a place for people to do it. So we built this health center not knowing if people would come, and it's, been, it's gone gangbusters. And we're at capacity. So as we speak right now, we're building another building, a 56,000-square-foot building that's going to have a walking track and will be able to do about 250,000 fitness visits a year. Right? And, and all this, all this from a little dinky church of a bunch of kids from the inner city, right, who had this dream. Sometimes I get emotional. One of the kids that dug that that gym out, his name is Joe. I got a book. I got I got a couple of books they wrote about it. They're real out of date, but Joe's Joe's story is told in chapter one. Joe grew up in the neighborhood. He was part of the founding church, dug the basketball court out, went off to the army, came back, didn't know what to do with his life, started using cocaine, started stealing from his mom, lived in card, the whole thing, tried to kill himself. He tried to kill himself, cuts his wrist, laying in a pool of, of blood in a bathtub. People in the church come back around him, start loving on him. He goes off, he gets clean, he comes back and he starts, he says, I want to help people in my neighborhood who have what I have. So he starts this thing called Hope House. We got Hope House. We got lots of different ministries out of the church. Hope House, to me, is my favorite one. We, if you come there, you can see it. It's nothing to look at. It's still the ugliest neighborhood in the world. But if you come there, you'll see this building, and it says Hope House on it. And there are 50 to 60 guys getting off of drugs and alcohol who are getting out of prison who live there for nine months together. And these guys are all working in the health center. They're working in. We got a restaurant. They're doing all this stuff. And Hope House really is a place where you can see God transform lives. So Joe comes back and starts Hope House. Joe actually was the, the guy who uh, we were honored to have baptized Samuel this year. That's what made me choked up. I was already thinking ahead. I couldn't think of a guy I'd rather have baptize my son. If, it, if you don't remember anything I say, and I know you're not going to remember anything I say, but if, if you don't, but if you remember one thing I say, remember this. You know, I, I'm always impressed when these guys get up here and say, here's my life verse. And I got stressed out the other day because I was thinking, I don't have a life verse. I don't have a life verse. And then I thought, well, maybe you do. It's the one I talk about all the time. Maybe that's, you know, it's a, it's a strange verse. It's in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 9.4. Here's what it says. Anyone who's among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. Everyone who's among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. Let me tell you what it's like to work at Lawndale. I had this three-point sermon that I used to give to students, and I, I always keep forgetting the points. I brought the cheat sheet up here, but it's something like this. The challenges are many. Uh, I actually forgot it. Something, the challenges are many. I remember number three, the rewards are great. Let me see. Oh, the need is great, the challenges are many, and the rewards are tremendous. Okay? So let me just briefly tell you what I'm talking about. Because it's one thing to sort of talk in theory. Let me tell you what it's like to work at Lawndale. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard to get up off the bench and to do what God wants you to do. It's always, it's always been a little bit, it's always bothered me a little bit. Because, you know, you, see, you watch these guys on TV, these name it, claim it people, these prosperity gospel people talk about, well, you know, if you say to a, to a, a mountain, if you have the faith of a mustard seed and you say to this mountain, be thou removed and cast in the sea, God will give it to you. You know, that name it, claim it stuff. But it's always humbling and, and a little bit disturbing to me to know that Jesus, you know who Jesus says, he says something in the, that says in the Bible, the greatest man born of woman, do you know who he says? John the Baptist. If John the Baptist is the greatest man born of woman, look what God did for him. He got his head on a platter. He got his head on a platter. 
See, God doesn't promise us. He promises us to give us what we need. He doesn't always promise to give us what we want. Right? But the work is hard. Let me tell you what it's like. I got a patient. She's a, from Mexico. And I came there and I said, I, and I was, she was pregnant. And, and I would see her and we were talking. And, and you know what? One of the things I started to figure out is that we're supposed to listen to patients. You know, somebody did a study and they found out that the average doctor in America, when they walk into the room, they let a patient talk for about 15 seconds before they cut them off. Hey, what brings you in today? They don't talk. In about 15 seconds, the doctor takes it. Because we don't have time. We don't want to listen. They actually study then how long a patient talks if you just don't say anything. You just leave it open-ended. And, they, and the average patient talks about two minutes. But we can't wait 15 seconds. Well, anyway, I started listening. And, and what she told me was she said she told me that her she was in distressed and she didn't speak a word of English. She's only here uh, because her husband is here trying to make a better life for their family. But she told me her husband was having an affair with his sister. A few visits later, she, I said, look, I need to see you back in four weeks. She said, can I see you back sooner? I said, well, you know, I really only need to see you back in four weeks. Why do you need to come back sooner? She said, well, I figured out that if, if my husband knows that I'm coming to see you, he's less likely to beat me because he doesn't want you to see the bruises. One of the first patients I saw was a 12-year-old at Lawndale. She came in because she was having nausea and vomiting, and she had missed her period. She was pregnant. We hire people from the neighborhood. And we got a pharmacy there. And one of the guys named Jose. And, uh, and I'm kind of one of the louder people at the health center. So I would walk through. And we, when you walk by every day in the pharmacy, and the pharmacists are, you know, are usually pretty, you know, real whatever. They're not real loud people. But this guy Jose was there. And he was, he was from a gang background. And he'd be like, hey, what up, Dr. D? What up, Jose? You know, we do all this crazy stuff like that. And so Jose was, was, was at the point, he, he had been arrested. He had been arrested because, he, he wouldn't te- because there was gang activity and, he w- and they wanted to know him to, to, to tell about what had happened or whatever. What, he wasn't involved, but, he, but they wanted him to kind of snitch on the gang. And I don't know if it was for his own safety or out of some sense of moral obligation to the gang, but he, he wouldn't tell. And so, so he was awaiting for, his, for the, the trial that happened, but he was awaiting for the judge to make the judgment. Now, Jose had worked for us for a while. At this point, I'm calling him my friend. And he asked me to write a character reference. He said that my lawyer said that if, he, if I can get people to write a character reference, it may, it may make a difference. Five minutes? Oh, Lord. I came, I came to work. I came to work. I wrote the character reference. Jose's trial is on, I think, Friday. I came to work on Thursday, and people in the, in the pharmacy are crying. Jose had been shot assassination style behind the head probably by his own gang because they didn't know they didn't know if he was going to snitch on him or not the work is hard let me skip to the rewards are tremendous here's what it says in Proverbs 19.17 he who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord Mother Teresa said that when she touched the face of the poor she was touching the face of Christ I don't know if theologically I'm with Mother Teresa all the way but if you remember Matthew 25 it says if you give a cup of water to the least of these in my name it says if you gave it to me I, I I'm not even. I haven't even begun my introduction, and I got five minutes left. Let me conclude with this. Here's the challenge. Here's the cha- here's the challenge for you. Okay, the challenge for you 
is, to, is, is what are you going to do with your life? Okay, there, there are, there are sort of three groups in this room, I'm guessing. The first group is a group that's not even sure that the story is true. Some of you guys are wondering whether or not Jesus Christ really is who he said he was. Some of you have come from backgrounds where you've been abused, where you're, you, you've, you've come from awful situations, right? And, and so it's hard for you to piece it together. How does that work? How does a loving God fit into that story? But for those of you who are really seeking the truth, I'm not worried because the Bible says, if you seek me, you'll find me. We actually have it backwards. He's the cat and we're the mouse. All you've got to do is turn around because he's right there behind you. There's a, there's a poem by Francis Thompson called The Hound of Heaven. It's a beautiful picture of this dog chasing this man through his life. And at the end of his life, he figures out that God's been behind him all the time, chasing him, hunting him down. Well, I'm not worried about you in that first group, those of you who are truly seeking him, okay? Because it says you'll find him. Now, for those of you who aren't really seeking him or just kind of fooling around, looking at your time at ENC as some kind of vacation, right? I was going to read a letter from Stanley Hauerwas. Stanley Hauerwas is the great theologian from Duke University. And he wrote a letter that you all need to read. It just came out a few months ago called Go With God. And he says this. He says, We live in a country where people think it's a gift for you to have four years to study. To be a student is a calling. It's a calling. You've been called by God. This is what he's called you to now. Right? It's a calling. And and your job is to take the the talent. And and some of you don't even know if you're going to be able to pass to make it to the next semester. Some of you are so smart you don't even need to study. It doesn't matter where you are on that spectrum. This is a gift from God. It's all grace. And it's yours to choose to do with as as you will. Right? He's asking you to join the team. So that's the first group. The second group is is this other group. You guys would say, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christ follower but you're sort of fooling around on the bench. You're in sexual relationships you shouldn't be in, right? You're drinking too much. You're looking at stuff on the Internet. Some of you are cheating in your classrooms, right? And remember, I'm not casting any stones at you. I'm not, I, what of the Ten Commandments have I not broken in word or deed this week? Okay? We're all struggling. We're all a bunch of broken sinners. But, some, but, but the fear, the problem with sin is if you stay in it too long, you won't even be able to see the way out. If you stay in it too long, you'll, you'll start to think, and I think about when I was in your, your shoes, one minute, I think about when I was in your shoes, and, 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 and I shudder to think of where I, where I could have gone. I shudder to think what it would have been like not to have the four most amazing kids and the most amazing wife in the world and the privilege it is to work at a place like Lawndale Christian Health Center. And then there's a third group of you. There's a third group who are Christ followers who are trying to figure out what to do with your lives, and, you're, and, you're, and I, I would challenge you this. Consider, consider, would God be calling you to work among the poor? It doesn't matter to me whether you work in health care or whatever, but think of that amazing verse in Proverbs. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. How would you like to be known when you get to heaven as the guy or the woman who lent to the Lord? Not bad, huh? The work is tough. It's very tough. Okay? And I can, I can tell you a billion stories. If you have lunch with me, I'll be here all day. I'll meet with you till midnight if you want tonight. I got a, a bunch more stuff to say, but I'm going to tell you it's worth it. It's worth it. You go with God. Statistics say 70% of you guys will leave here, and by the time you're 30, you will say that the church is irrelevant and you will not come back. If the church is irrelevant, the question for you is what are you doing to make it relevant? What are you doing? To, because God has called you to this purpose, right? He's called the church his body, he's called the church his bride. 
It's not irrelevant. He doesn't need you, but he'd like to invite you to be on the team. Be blessed.